Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, Ricardo Lopez, and today I'm joined for a second time by Leif Al-Shawaf. He's assistant professor of psychology at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Last time, because I've already had him on the show once, we talked about some misconceptions regarding evolutionary psychology and evolutionary theory more generally. And today we're going to do a little bit of that as well. And we're going to talk also about emotions like anger and disgust. So, and we're going to focus mostly on a recent article that came out on Aereo magazine, Evolutionary Psychology Predictively Powerful or Riddled with Just So Story. So Leif, welcome to the show. Thank you again for taking the time to come on. Thank you, Ricardo. Okay, great. So my first question will be because your article is focused on just so stories or at least the accusation that is leveled against uh, evolutionary psychology people say that it's just a bunch of just so stories but i i haven't asked this yet to any evolutionary psychologist but what would be a just so story a just-so story is an explanation for a phenomenon that is accepted despite not having enough evidence in its favor. Or I'd say to be more precise about it, it's when somebody notices a phenomenon and then asks, hmm, I wonder why that's the case, and then proposes a post hoc explanation for that phenomenon and then just decides to believe that post hoc explanation because it sounds plausible. Mm -hmm. And in the in the specific case of evolutionary psychology, could you perhaps give us an uh, what would be an example of a just so story? Sure. So let me give a couple of examples. Um, my first one is going to be a little bit crude, so please forgive that. But um, some people, when they urinate, shiver. And uh, this is sometimes called uh, urination convulsion syndrome or urination shiver syndrome or whatever. And it appears to, uh, appears to happen to men more than women. And so the question is, imagine, imagine I notice this phenomenon. I notice that uh, sometimes during urination or toward the end of urination, a person shivers. And then I say, huh, I wonder why that occurs. And then I decide, I come up with the explanation that the reason why some people shiver when they urinate is because during human evolution, back when we lived in the African savanna, if you were urinating outdoors, that was kind of dangerous because a predator might come up to you. And so the, the, the shivering or the convulsing while urinating makes the stream uh, tremble and shiver as well. And that spooks the predator and scares them off. And that's the reason that we shiver while we pee. It's a predator defense mechanism. And then suppose I just decide without deriving any novel predictions from that idea and without testing any novel predictions derived from that idea, I just decide to believe it on the basis of, I think it sounds plausible. That would be a just so story. Um, now that's kind of a strange idea that I just made up and is, is obviously implausible. But so I'd like to pick a different example that sounds um, a little bit better and will help me to illustrate a point. There's, um, there's a question out there in evolutionary biology, which is why do zebras have stripes? And this has been debated for a very long time. 
And there are five major possible answers to the question. The first possible answer is crypsis. It's a form of camouflage that helps them to hide and camouflage in with their background. A second possible answer is that it has to do with predator confusion, that the black and white stripes, especially while the animal is moving, confuses the predators and makes it harder for the predator to see or catch the animal. A third possibility is that it has to do with thermoregulation, that the black and white stripes help the animal thermoregulate in some way. Um, a fourth possibility is that it has to do with social identification. So for example, zebras in group living situations, maybe they're using the particular patterns of stripes on their conspecifics on other zebras to identify individual zebras. And a fifth potential answer to the question, why do zebras have stripes, is that it has to do with parasites, with ectoparasites, that perhaps for some reason, these uh, ectoparasites like flies and tabinids are less attracted to or don't bite as much animals that are striped compared to animals that are not. And um, if we stop for a second and think about it, if you ask me the question, why are zebras striped? And I say, oh, it's for camouflage. Right now, that's a just so story. We've noticed a phenomenon. We've come up with a post hoc explanation for why it might exist. If I just stop there and I don't derive any novel predictions from that explanation and I just decide to believe it, it's a it's a just so story. It ceases to be a just so story if I derive a novel prediction from that explanation and then I go and test that prediction. And so the reason I think this example is interesting is because Initially, the five explanations put forward for why zebras have stripes, they all are basically just so stories until you take the extra step of deriving novel predictions from them and then going and testing those predictions. And so this was done a few years ago. A group of researchers derived novel predictions from all five of these supposed explanations, and they tested them with a variety of zebra species and subspecies, and they found that the only one that got any good support, any significant support, was the ectoparasite hypothesis. So striping seems to reduce um, biting by ectoparasites such as uh, tsetse flies and tabinids. But the reason I like that explanation, or the reason I like that example, is that it kind of illustrates the boundary between a just-so story and a not-just-so story. When you see a phenomenon and you concoct an explanation to account for it, and you just leave it at that, that's a just-so story. But if you take the extra step of generating a novel prediction from that explanation and then testing that novel X prediction, that, that novel prediction, it ceases to be a just-so story. Mm -hmm. Should we make a distinction between a just-so story and, let's say, a bad hypothesis? A bad hypothesis in this case would be something like uh, an hypothesis that is not supported by the literature behind it. So I'm asking you that because many times I see, for example, videos on YouTube or read articles that people that uh, do not like evolutionary psychology, I mean, they basically pick up uh, an article. So, for example, uh, an example that I've seen recently is why women wear pink and men wear blue or something like that. They pick, they pick that article and then they say, okay, so this is a just so story. But it could be the case that it was simply 
uh, a bad uh, prediction or a bad or a bad hypothesis and I mean, sometimes you also get hypotheses put on the table that then get invalidated, but that's normal science, right? That's right, yeah. I think that there are good hypotheses and bad hypotheses out there. There are hypotheses that have become invalidated. A just-so story, um, I think, in its essence, involves this move from beginning by noticing an observation or noticing a phenomenon and then saying, huh, I wonder why that happens, and then generating an explanation, which is basically a post hoc explanation, to try to account for that phenomenon and then just stopping there and just deciding to believe your explanation. Um, then the example that you gave about like why do women wear pink or men wear blue or whatever, I haven't encountered that one, but um, I have encountered this odd thing where <clears throat> sometimes people who are not quite in evolutionary psychology or anthropology or biology, but they maybe have a, an interest in it, they might notice a phenomenon and then generate an, explanation, an evolutionary explanation for it and then stop there and not derive any novel predictions. But sometimes this is coming from <clears throat> sort of outside the actual evolutionary human sciences. At least that, that's what I've noticed uh, sometimes. Mm -hmm. So just to make this straight, uh, hypotheses and predictions in evolutionary psychology, they can sometimes be invalidated, right? Because I mean, that's another accusation that when people talk about the just-so stories or they use the just-so stories argument, they say that basically um, predictions and hypotheses in evolutionary psychology are unfalsifiable. But just to tackle that issue, could you give us some examples of predictions or hypotheses that have been falsified in evolutionary psychology? Sure, yeah, there are several. Um, let me offer a couple. One of them is uh, has to do with the question of waist-to-hip ratio and why waist-to-hip ratio is a feature of attractiveness and what it supposedly cues or what it is linked to. And the, one of the hypotheses is that, that waist-to-hip ratio is a cue to health, Another hypothesis is that waist-to-hip ratio is acute to fertility, and there are other hypotheses as well. And the hypothesis that waist-to-hip ratio is acute to health has been largely falsified. Some of the initial studies that provided evidence for that link took place in older samples that were past their reproductive years, and often took place in weird samples, that is, Western-educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic. And... Um, Newer studies and better studies that have focused on, let's say, samples that are not past their reproductive years and focus on samples that take place in subsistence uh, forager societies have found that waste to ratio does not seem to be a cue to health. And instead, it seems to be a cue to parity or nulliparity. That is, it seems to be linked to how many offspring a woman has given birth to or not given birth to. And uh, when a woman hasn't given birth yet, the waist-to-hip ratio is at its lower, more attractive end of the range. And then with each subsequent birth, it tends to increase. And so um, 
over the years, there have been, there have been a number of different hypotheses about waist to hip ratio and why it's an element of attractiveness and what it is acute to. The notion that it is acute to health has been largely falsified, leaving in its place other hypotheses with the leading contender being that it's related to parity. So that's one example. Um, another example would be the kin altruism theory of the evolution of genes for homosexuality. And that's the notion that if you ask the question, well, how did the genes for homosexuality evolve if they lead to a lower likelihood of reproduction? How did that occur? And one proposed explanation, one proposed hypothesis is, well, if um, people who are homosexual, maybe they have a lower likelihood of reproducing, but maybe they also invest more in their uncles and aunts and nephews and cousins and nieces. And if they do invest more in their family members, the added benefit to their family members may outweigh the reduced likelihood of reproducing in line with Bill Hamilton's inclusive fitness logic. And so uh, that's called the kin altruism theory for the evolution of genes of homosexuality. And it leads to the prediction that gay people will invest more in their family members, uh, uncles, aunts, cousins, nieces, etc., than uh, hetero people. And that has been tested and refuted and falsified. And so that hypothesis is out of the running and there are other hypotheses that remain. So that's another example of a, of a hypothesis that has been falsified. Um, two more examples are in a manuscript that we currently have under review. I can't say too much about it since it's under review at a journal, but these two hypotheses have to do with the emotion of disgust and they have to do with the communication or the advertising of disgust and we falsify both. Um, it's quite easy and basically all you need to do is you get your hypothesis and then you ask yourself, well, if this is true, then what else should be true? That's the traditional way that all scientists derive predictions from hypotheses and then they go test their predictions. So all you have to do is take your hypothesis, derive some testable predictions from it and go test them. And that has been done many times, sometimes leading to the falsification of hypotheses like the ones we just talked about and sometimes leading to their support or their lack of falsification. But there's no great difficulty in deriving predictions from evolutionary hypotheses and then going and testing them. Mm -hmm. So I think we've already talked a little bit about these last time in our first talk, but uh, is there a set of criteria that people follow in evolutionary psychology to determine if something is a good prediction, a good hypothesis, or even a good theory? I think so. Um, so let's talk about all three of those. The relationship between them, of course, is that theory is the most general, hypothesis is in the middle, and then prediction is the most narrow and specific. And a good prediction is one that is testable in the lab or in the field, and ideally ends up getting supported by the data. A good hypothesis is one that yields many predictions that are themselves testable in the lab or the field. And a good theory is one that yields many hypotheses that are themselves also testable via the predictions that they lead in, in lead to in the lab or the field. So um, that's that's kind of one way of answering the question. But if we take a step back and we focus on theory, which is the the broadest of the three, there are 
other criteria that make a good theory as well. So, so far we've just talked about yielding new predictions that are testable and that hopefully get supported by the evidence. A good theory, in addition to yielding new predictions and new discoveries, also explains existing findings or explains known findings. And in addition to yielding new predictions and explaining known findings, a good theory is also one that can integrate many known findings and link them into a theoretical framework that is capable of unifying them or making sense of all of them. So for example, in psychology, there's kind of a disconnect between the different branches or subfields of psychology, developmental, personality, social, cognitive. And a good theory is one that can link findings or principles from these different subfields of psychology with one another and ideally also link them to other fields, link them to the life sciences, biology and the other life sciences. So to my mind, evolutionary theory uh, does a pretty good job of that. It links findings in the psychological sciences to one another, crossing and to some extent dissolving the arbitrary subdisciplinary boundaries in psychology. And it also links findings in psychology and the social sciences to biology, which is a good criterion, which is a, a criterion for a good theory. And then um, I would say another criterion for a good theory is parsimony. Now, sometimes people take parsimony to mean that a theory must be simple, which I don't think that's really what it means. Uh, in fact, a theory may not be simple because the world is not always simple and so the phenomena that we're trying to explain are not always simple. But the notion that a theory should be parsimonious is the notion that it shouldn't posit any unnecessary entities or explanatory factors. It shouldn't introduce or proliferate um, explanatory factors or things or entities that aren't really needed to, to explain the phenomenon at hand. And so putting all those together, a good theory is one that yields new predictions and new discoveries, that explains known findings and known observations, that links findings and principles within a discipline and across disciplines, and that is parsimonious. <clears throat> and if I, can I add an example here? Sure, sure, go ahead. There is, there's an example I really like, um, and it has to do with linking three different disciplines. It links physics, biology, and geography. And the reason I like it is because <clears throat> if what we're doing in science is painting an accurate picture of the world, then we need to have what is called consilience, which means that we can't suggest things in psychology that violate the known findings and principles of biology. And we can't suggest things in biology that violate the known principles and findings of chemistry. The different sciences must agree with one another and must be compatible with one another, or to use the other term, must be consilient with one another if what we think we're doing is, is painting an accurate picture of the world, discovering the way the world works. So there's this cool example of that that I like, which is that, um, an organism's ability to generate heat depends on its volume. And an organism's ability to exchange heat with the environment depends on its surface area. And as an organism gets bigger, both its volume and its surface area get bigger. 
So that means that as an organism gets bigger, both its ability to generate thermal energy and its ability to exchange or lose thermal energy with the environment, they both increase as the organism gets bigger. But as an organism gets bigger, volume increases faster than surface area, which means the ability to generate heat increases faster than the ability to lose heat with the environment. So the net effect of all of that is that larger animals are warmer than smaller animals. And if you take that and you think about it for a second, you might expect that the way species are distributed across the globe might fit this fact such that smaller species are closer to the equator where it's warmer and larger species are farther from the equator and closer to the poles where it's colder. And indeed, if you look at the geographic distribution of species around the globe, that's how it's patterned. A lot of the smaller species like insects and tiny mammals are closer to the equator. And as you move toward the poles, species get bigger polar bears and, and other species like that. Now, of course, there are exceptions, as there are to all uh, patterns, but the pattern holds. The pattern even holds for humans, that if you look at humans at the equator and then moving toward the poles, they tend to be shorter, closer to the equator, and uh, larger toward the poles. And um, again, exceptions notwithstanding. But the reason I like this example so much is that it basically links the mathematics and physics of uh, volume and surface area to the thermoregulation in biology, to the geographic distribution of species in geography. And I think that's exactly the kind of thing that we want to do in science, is have our theories and our frameworks be able to link different disciplines and to be able to help promote consilience or agreement or conceptual integration between disciplines. And so what I would argue is that evolutionary theory does a very good job of linking findings within the different subdisciplinary boundaries in psychology, and then also of linking those findings and linking psychology to the life sciences. So to, to my mind, that's a, a strong theory because it does that in addition to what we said before, which is predict new findings, explain known findings, integrate known findings, and be parsimonious. Right. So before we move on to talking about emotions, namely anger and disgust, let me just ask you this, because at a certain point there you mentioned the fact that in psychology, the different subfields, uh, I mean, they tend to act in disconnected ways. So, for example, social psychology, developmental, cognitive, uh, evolutionary psychology, I mean, sometime uh, or many, many times even, uh, they seem to be operating uh, in a sort of, I, I wouldn't like to say isolated because uh, that's probably too strong a word, but I mean, the, they really act uh, in disconnected ways from one another. And do you think that evolutionary psychology could be a good candidate to somewhere in the future provide us with a, uh, would, with what would be probably a central theory that could unify all of the different branches of psychology. Because since we are here talking about uh, basically the psychology that resulted from our evolution and the sort of evolutionary pressures we were exposed to, I mean, at least from my perspective, it seems that it could provide the basis to connect 
all of the different subfields. Yeah, I think that's the hope. And um, it's really just the notion that we can take the same unifying paradigm that biology and the life sciences have, which is evolution, and use that as the unifying paradigm for the social sciences as well. Because after all, the organisms, humans, that are the subject matter of the social sciences are biological organisms and they have evolved and their brains have evolved. And so it's not, you know, in some sense, it sounds like a radical idea, but in some sense, it's not a radical idea at all. It's just saying, let's take the theoretical framework that we already know unifies the life sciences. And let's take the fact that humans are biological organisms and, and try to use that same unifying paradigm for the social sciences. So I do think that that's the hope. And I think that from an evolutionary perspective, the sort of disciplinary sub-boundaries in psychology between social, developmental, personality, cognitive, they do seem sort of arbitrary. And um, it's, they're sort of the result of historical accident and our textbooks are, class, are divided that way and our courses are divided that way, but the mind isn't really divided that way and the brain isn't really divided that way. And if you pick any phenomenon you want to pick, like if you pick, I don't know, um, let's say, uh, fear of strangers. Fear of strangers is an emotional topic, so it kind of belongs to social psychology, but it's also um, something that develops across ontogeny, so it kind of belongs to, to uh, developmental psychology, but it also has a neurophysiological basis, so it belongs to, per uh, to neuroscience, but it also there's individual differences in fear of strangers, so it belongs to personality psychology, and the mechanisms that generate that fear are cognitive information processing mechanisms so it belongs to cognitive psychology. And you can do that with any example you pick in psychology, and you can see that actually it fits or belongs to all of the subdisciplinary um, fields in psych. And so, yeah, uh, on that way of looking at it, those boundaries are somewhat arbitrary. And reorganizing the field or approaching the field from an evolutionary perspective would not emphasize those boundaries and would instead uh, offer a different way of looking at it, which is sort of similar to the way that animal behaviorists think about uh, other species, which is, you know, here are the ecological problems that these animals have evolved to solve. And how do they solve those problems? And what are the proximate mechanisms in their body and brain that help them to solve those problems? And uh, what are the functions of the various behaviors or information processing mechanisms they have? So I don't want to, you know, bore your listeners too much with, with uh, that. But I guess the idea is that, yes, the hope is that borrowing the same unifying paradigm that has worked so exceedingly well for the biological sciences and applying it to the social sciences would also yield great fruit. Okay, so let's now talk about anger. That is a subject that you also bring about in your Hario magazine article. So... Hang anger is an emotion. What is what are basically the evolutionary functions that it serve? It serves, and what is it really? Yeah. Um, well, anger is, at least according to one prominent evolutionary theory, is essentially a an emotion that evolved as a bargaining tool to convince other people to treat you better when they're not treating you well enough. The notion is that 
evolutionary psychologists use this term called a welfare trade-off ratio. And a welfare trade-off ratio basically means how much you value my welfare or my well-being relative to your own. And the idea is that if you're not treating me well enough and I detect that you're not placing enough emphasis on my well-being, then I exhibit anger in an attempt to convince you, and here I'm using convince in a loose kind of unconscious fashion, I exhibit anger in an attempt to convince you to treat me better, to place more emphasis on my welfare. And this theory leads to some very specific a priori predictions that can then be tested. And uh, so let me share a few of those predictions with you. It, uh, this theory suggests that, let's ask the question, who should be, um, in terms of victims of, uh, of a wrongdoing, victims of a, a bad act or a heinous act, who should be the angriest? And the theory suggests that the context that should trigger the greatest anger in victims should be the context that show that the wrongdoer really didn't care about the welfare of the victim. And so there's three contexts that really suggest that. The first one is when the victim suffered a large cost. The second one is when the wrongdoer was targeting the victim specifically. It wasn't, for example, that they were just pulling a prank on a gr group of people and by accident the victim got hurt. They were specifically targeting the victim. And the third context that should predict increased anger is when the wrongdoer only got a little benefit out of what he did. And that sounds like a weird prediction, the idea that victims should be angrier when the wrongdoer only benefited slightly. But the reason that the theory makes that prediction is because if the wrongdoer hurts you for only a small benefit, that means he really doesn't care about you. That means he really doesn't, that means he cares about you even less than if he was willing to hurt you for a large benefit to himself. So essentially the theory predicts that the three contexts that will trigger the greatest anger are the victim suffered great costs, the victim was targeted specifically, and the wrongdoer only benefited slightly. So these three predictions have been tested in, a, in an experiment that took place in six countries, and all three a priori predictions were supported. The six countries were Romania, India, Turkey, the USA, Australia, and Shuar hunter horticulturalists in Ecuador. And then the theory also leads to three additional a priori predictions, which is how should the wrongdoer apologize to his victims? How should the wrongdoer try to appease or placate his victims? And what the theory predicts is that the wrongdoer will try to apologize or try to argue in a way that basically says, I really do care about your welfare. So the wrongdoer will try to say, I didn't know that the cost to you would be so large. I didn't know you would suffer so much. Or I didn't know that you would be the specific victim. I was pulling a prank on your whole group of people, but I didn't know that you specifically would suffer. Or the wrongdoer will say, I actually gained so much out of that. I benefited so much from what I did. And that too is kind of a funny notion and a, a counterintuitive prediction. The idea that the wrongdoer will try to apologize to his victims by saying, I actually benefited a great deal from what I did. But um, again, the reason that the theory makes this prediction is because if he benefited a great deal, he probably cares about you more than if he benefited only a little. If he was willing to hurt you for less, 
uh, to less benefit to himself, he really doesn't care about you. And so these three predictions were also tested in, in these six countries, and these three predictions were also verified by the data. And then a supplementary set of predictions made by uh, the same team of researchers was that uh, these apologies, if made by the wrongdoer, they would actually work. They would actually succeed to some extent in reducing the anger of the victims. And so those these three additional predictions were also tested in the six countries and they were also supported by the data. Now, the reason that this is interesting or it matters is because it's a really good example of how we are not at all noticing a phenomenon, scratching our heads and saying, huh, I wonder why that occurred, concocting a post hoc explanation to account for it, and then deciding to believe the explanation. We're doing the exact opposite. We're beginning with a theory, generating new a priori predictions on the basis of that theory, and then going and testing those predictions in six countries, and then those predictions are verified and we discover new things about how the mind works. So it's the diametric opposite of a just-so story in which you notice a behavior, concoct an explanation, and simply decide to believe the explanation. Uh, and that I, think is, that, I think, is something that is often lost on critics who think that evolutionary psychology is full of just-so stories. They very frequently think that what people do in evolutionary psychology is notice a behavior, generate an explanation, and then just decide to believe it. When very, very frequently what researchers do is the opposite. Begin with a theory, generate tightly generated a priori predictions, and then go test those predictions. Mm -hmm. Right. And what about the emotion of these guests? Because I know you've also studied these. Uh, what is this guest and, I mean, what are the sorts of contexts or cues that trigger this guest? Disgust is thought to be an emotion that evolved to reduce the likelihood of infection and to protect us from pathogens. And so the, the I'm thinking now of pathogen disgust, which is kind of the classical canonical disgust. It's thought to protect us from pathogens and reduce the likelihood of infection. And the cues or contexts that trigger it are the kinds of cues and contexts that are linked with the presence of pathogens. So uh, I hope nobody's eating while they're listening to this, but feces, vomit, open wounds, pus, um, vectors for disease like rodents and, and other animals that can transmit disease those kinds of things, things that are linked with the presence of parasites and pathogens trigger disgust. Mm -hmm. And I mean, there's a big debate surrounding disgust, particularly when it comes to its different domain. So, for example, we have pathogen disgust and sexual disgust, and I, I think that at least these two all researchers agree with, but then we have moral disgust, and this is a more controversial one. So do you have any take on these, uh, on these things surrounding the domains of disgust? I mean, the, do you think that we have three different domains, or that what people call moral disgust maybe derives from one of the other two? Or, I mean, what is your take? Yeah, I have a take. It's maybe a little bit unsatisfying because I'm undecided about moral disgust. But uh, basically, to, in case your readers or your listeners are not familiar, pathogen disgust is thought to have evolved to reduce the likelihood of uh, parasitic infection. 
sexual disgust is thought to be um, co-opted from pathogen disgust and it serves the function to steer us away from unwise mate choices or injudicious sexual partners, for example, partners who are too young or too old or who are family members, genetic relatives. And then moral disgust is thought to be a response that we have to when we see something occur that's morally abhorrent and it's thought to help people in a group manage conflicts that arise in that group by sort of deciding who to condemn and deciding how to deal with the conflict that has arisen in the group. So the supposed function of moral disgust is to coordinate condemnation of somebody who has engaged in a morally repulsive act and thereby to help settle a conflict between different members of, of the group. Um, my take on it is that pathogen disgust is, uh, we understand it fairly well, and uh, its function is fairly clear. Sexual disgust, also I think we understand it reasonably well, and its function is fairly clear. Moral disgust is a thornier and more complicated issue, and um, to be honest, I'm sort of undecided about it, awaiting uh, more data and uh, reserving the right to to not have a firm conclusion until I feel more certain about it. But it is, it's messier, you know, it's not entirely clear if it's truly disgust or if it's more like moral indignation, which is a form of anger related to anger, or if it's some mix of the two. So my somewhat unsatisfying answer is that I'm reserving uh, judgment until I feel more comfortable drawing a very firm conclusion about moral disgust. Mm -hmm. So, in terms of what people call moral disgust, it could be, for example, another emotion, right? I mean, when people condemn others morally, it could be, I don't know, a, a other, another type of emotion that's not disgust. It could be. It could be another emotion like anger or something else that is not discussed. It could be uh, something that is somewhat connected to more than one emotion or draws on elements of more than one emotion. Or maybe it's something that uh, uses the language of disgust and occasionally even uses the facial expressions of disgust without necessarily being an emotion itself. And so I think that you know researchers are working on that and having good debates on that. It's, um, to my mind, it's useful to sort of distinguish, as, as you did in your question, between the things we're more confident about and the things that are still open debates, less clear, and in the process of being worked out. And so to my mind, this is very much still open to debate in the process of being worked out, which contrasts with sexual and pathogen disgust, which are reasonably well understood. I mean, there's certainly questions that remain also for sexual and pathogen discuss, but at least their function and their basic operation is a little bit clearer, clearer than moral disgust. Mm -hmm. And in terms of disgust, I mean, these things that you talked about, have they been uh, tested uh, cross-culturally or, or have they only been tested in weird societies, for example? Well, there's definitely an over-reliance on weird societies, but uh, there have been some cross-cultural tests. Disgust is another example, like anger, <clears throat> really there's many examples, another example where researchers took a theory or a hypothesis and then generated from it a number of a priori predictions and then went out and tested them. 
And so, for example, if if I believe that disgust is probably an emotion that evolved to reduce the likelihood of infection and protect us from pathogens, on the basis of that hypothesis, I can now generate some predictions. I can predict that people will be more disgusted by more pathogenic substances compared to less pathogenic substances. And then we can go out and test that, and we find that it's supported by the data. We can also predict that people who have higher levels of disgust may have been less likely to get sick recently because the disgust protected them. So we go out and we test that, and that's also supported by the data. We can also predict that disgust should be context sensitive. So for example, you shouldn't get so disgusted by your own offspring that you don't take care of them. You should, your disgust should be suppressed or downregulated when you're taking care of your offspring to permit you to take care of them and clean their poop and so on. And we might also predict that you'll be less disgusted by your own offspring's poop compared to some other baby's poop. And that prediction has been tested and supported by the evidence. We might also predict, these are all predictions generated a priori um, and then tested. We might also predict that if disgust functions to predict, uh, pr protect us from pathogens and parasites, and if different regions of the world vary in how parasite-dense or pathogen-dense they are, we might predict that people who grow up in more pathogen-dense and parasite-dense regions of the world will be less extroverted and less open to new experiences and less interested in short-term mating, because all of those things spread pathogens and increase the likelihood of disease, they'll be less interested in those things than people who grow up in regions of the world with fewer pathogens and parasites. And that has been tested in a, a global data set and supported by the data. We might also predict that, um, what else can we predict or what else have researchers predicted? Researchers have also predicted that if you uh, threaten somebody with a pathogen threat, then they will behave in a way that reduces the likelihood of getting infected. For example, if you threaten them in the lab with a pathogen threat, they'll behaviorally withdraw from the pathogen threat, and they'll also start to feel less um, extroverted and less open to experience, so that they're less interested in affiliating with other people and hugging them and touching them and less interested in trying new things and eating new foods and stuff like that. And that's also been tested and supported. And then we might also predict that if you present somebody with a pathogen threat, like an image of a sick person, a sick conspecific or something like that, they won't just feel disgusted, but their body will also mount an immune response. And that's also been tested and supported. Now, the, you know, the reason I enumerate all of these predictions is to highlight that what is actually going on in most evolutionary studies of psychology, cognition, emotion, and behavior is not that you notice a phenomenon again and then scratch your head, come up with a post hoc explanation for it, and then decide to believe it. Instead, you do the opposite. You've got a hypothesis about what disgust is, is and why it exists and what function it serves. You use that hypothesis to generate six or seven a priori predictions like we just did, and then you go test them, and it turns out they get supported, and in the process, you discover something new about the mind. You discover something new about how disgust works and how it's uh, deployed in behavioral situations. So it's very much the diametric opposite of the, what's supposedly going on with the just-so story. Right. 
So in the article, you also talk about error management theory, and I think this is also a very good example to illustrate how evolutionary psychology works uh, opposite to the just-so stories accusation. So could you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. Error management theory is a fascinating theory about the evolution of cognitive biases or information processing biases. And I think that the best way to understand it is by analogy to a humanly engineered system like uh, smoke detectors in our kitchens. And the idea is that a smoke detector in our kitchens can make one of two kinds of errors, uh, one of two kinds of error. It can either fail to detect a real fire or it can detect a fire when really it's nothing and it's just us cooking. And the idea is that one of these is way more costly than the other one. Failing to detect a real fire can kill you, but the other error, just detecting a fire when really we're just cooking, is just a nuisance. It's just annoying. It's not a big deal. So when we design smoke alarms, we purposefully engineer them to be biased toward the safer error because we want to minimize the more dangerous error. So we actually don't make smoke alarms to be maximally accurate, as accurate as they can be. We make them to be biased on purpose toward false alarms because in so doing, we minimize the likelihood that they will make the catastrophic error that will kill us. And the notion is that this doesn't just apply to humanly engineered artifacts like smoke detectors, it also applies to the evolution of neurocognitive mechanisms in animal brains. The notion is that if a species recurrently faces a decision-making problem, and they can make one of two kinds of errors in this problem, and one of these errors is recurrently more costly than the other one, well then, that species will evolve decision-making mechanisms in its brain that are biased toward the safer error, which we sometimes refer to as adaptively biased toward the safer error. And the cool thing about this theory is that it leads to predictions in a variety of different domains. So when it comes to immunology and physiology, um, we, our immune system can make two kinds of error when it's analyzing an external stimulus. It can fail to detect a real threat or it can think something is a threat when it's really not. And of the two, failing to detect a real threat is much more costly than thinking is something a threat when it's not, on average. And so our immune system has evolved to be biased toward false alarms, to think certain things are threats when they're really not. And that's what allergies are, is responding, at least that's what many people think allergies are, responding to non-threats in the environment as if they were threats. Or to take an example from psychology, from visual perception, if you're walking around on a cliff or some other kind of precipice and you look down to um, the, the ground, there's two kinds of errors you could make. You could over-perceive your distance to the ground, thereby thinking you're higher than you actually are, or you could under-perceive your distance to the ground, thereby thinking you're not as high as you actually are. And the two errors have different costs. One is worse than the other. If you if you under-perceive your distance to the ground, you think you're closer than you actually are and you're not that high up, you might not be very cautious. You might try to navigate the slope and you might fall and die. By contrast, if you over-perceive your, your distance to the ground, you think you're higher up than you actually are, this will make you act more cautious and take more care in navigation so you'll be less likely to fall. So the prediction is that our visual perception system will have evolved to be biased toward over-perceiving 
distance to ground when we're standing at a height such as a cliff. And that's exactly what studies find, is that at the top of a cliff, we over-perceive our distance to the ground. And we, we do that much less so when we're at the bottom looking up, because there isn't as much danger when you're at the bottom looking up. Or to take another example from auditory perception this time, this kind of error management theory leads to a, a very cool set of predictions about uh, an auditory bias we have called the auditory looming bias. And the idea is that if, if let's suppose a predator or an angry human is rushing at you and they intend to eat you or hurt you, and they're making a noise as they rush at you, and you're trying to estimate how soon will they reach me, how soon will this noise reach me, there's two kinds of errors you could make. You could estimate that the noise will reach you sooner than it actually will, or you could estimate that the noise will reach you later than it actually will. And there's a big difference between these two kinds of errors. If you estimate that it will reach you sooner than it actually will, this gives you extra time to freak out and get your act together and get out of there. If you estimate that it's gonna reach you later than it actually will, then you take your time and you're not, you don't escape quickly enough from the threat. So the prediction is, we will estimate oncoming sounds or incoming sounds to be arriving sooner than they actually are. And that's exactly what study finds. We estimate that, that incoming sounds will arrive sooner than they actually are. This, this is called the auditory looming bias. We also estimate that incoming sounds are closer than they actually are and that they, if we also estimate that an incoming sound that is approaching us is approaching us faster than a receding sound is receding, even if actually the two are approaching and receding at exactly the same rate. And all of this essentially uh, helps us to escape the sound, which is presumably a threat, escape the threat faster. And these were predictions that were made a priori rather than discovered and then explained after the fact. And this bias, it also uh, doesn't just apply to humans, it also applies to monkeys. And this bias, there's individual differences in this bias that also were predicted before the fact. For example, it was predicted that less physically fit people will need longer to escape an oncoming threat. Therefore, they should have a more pronounced auditory looming bias than more physically fit people. And that turns out to be exactly the case. And uh, if I can just add one thing, uh, there's one other aspect of this theory that's very cool, which is that there's, we can distinguish between two kinds of sounds. Harmonic sounds, which that's like the, for example, the noise of a predator rushing toward you or an angry human rushing toward you would create a harmonic tone or non-harmonic tones like leaves rustling or the rain falling, background noise like that would be non-harmonic. And if you really think about it, the logic of the theory suggests that the auditory looming bias should only apply to harmonic sounds and not to non-harmonic sounds because the rain and stuff doesn't really pose a threat. What might pose the threat is the predator rushing toward you or the angry human rushing toward you. So the auditory looming bias should only apply to harmonic tones, not to non-harmonic tones, and that is exactly what the data show. So um, I like this theory partly because it generates a plethora of new a priori predictions in domains ranging from visual perception to auditory perception to mating cognition to more that we haven't even talked about yet.
Yeah. And does this theory also apply to other things that we've been talking about, like, for example, disgust? Yeah, it does apply to disgust. So there's this thorny question, or at least it appears thorny at first glance, which is if the function of pathogen disgust is to protect us from pathogens, then it totally makes sense that when I look at somebody with you know, an open wound on their face and there's pus coming out, it makes sense that I'm disgusted by that. But what doesn't appear to make sense at first glance is why do people react with disgust to non-infectious conditions? Some people report that they're disgusted by obesity, which is not infectious. Some people report that they're disgusted by burn wounds, which are not infectious. Some people are disgusted by birthmarks of a certain color, which are not infectious. So it, it's uh, initially a puzzle. Why are people disgusted by non-infectious disfigurements or non-infectious uh, things on the face or body? And error management theory can potentially help us under, understand why. It's that the disgust system, much like the immune system and the other uh, visual perception and auditory stuff we were talking about, it can make one of two kinds of error. It can fail to detect a real pathogen threat, or it can detect a pathogen threat where there isn't really one. And of these two kinds of errors, failing to detect a real pathogen threat is more costly and more dangerous than supposedly detecting one where there isn't one. And therefore, uh, this kind of reasoning would suggest that the disgust system has evolved to be over-responsive or over-inclusive in the set of cues that trigger it. In other words, the disgust system should be triggered sometimes by non-infectious agents, such as uh, burn wounds or birthmarks that look odd, even though they're not pathogenic, but merely because they are strange aberrations from what is typical. So error management theory may help us, in addition to generating novel predictions that we already talked about, it may also help us explain known but puzzling findings such as this one, why are we disgusted by non-infectious things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about one last topic. Last time we've talked basically about how evolutionary psychology also takes into account things like the environment, learning, the context, and so on. But talking specifically about culture, because recently, for example, I've had on the show one of the most prominent figures in cultural psychology, Stephen Heine. And uh, I, as, you might, as you should know, uh, or as you probably know, last year, Joseph Henrik published The Weirdest People in the World, and he presents a lot of evidence that suggests that at least some of, um, some of our Western cognition, let's say, has been the result of cultural evolutionary processes and not really biological evolutionary processes. And uh, a, a person that takes that to an extreme is Cecilia Hayes. I have had her on the show and she has an entire book, Cognitive Gadgets, where she presents evidence that suggests that things like imitation, uh, mind reading or theory of mind, language and so on, uh, are not really innate, but uh, are learned. And so they would be the result of environmental influences and cultural influences and so on. So do you think that uh, they could have a point there? I mean, perhaps not 
the extreme version of it where a completely novel cognitive mechanism would be generated by culture, but that perhaps culture could influence our evolved psychology in one way or the other. Yeah, I think that's a very good way of putting it, that there's a point there, but it probably doesn't lie in the extreme notion that culture can generate uh, a novel cognitive mechanism on its own, but it lies in a more subtle interpretation of why culture is uh, important. And, and let me share what I think about that. But let me first say, people, you know, people use the word innate um, in so many different ways. Some people use it to mean evolved. Some people use it to mean present at birth. Some people use it to mean genetically determined. Some people use it to mean no learning is involved. So I personally don't like the word innate and I don't use it uh, because I think that it sows more confusion than it cleans up. And I think that, you know, as long as there's this term that is used in so many different ways, it's easier to to avoid the ambiguous term and specify exactly what we mean. And as you know, uh, I don't think there's a conflict between evolution and learning. I think that many things are the product of evolved learning mechanisms. But uh, to get to your question about the role of culture in generating novel cognitive mechanisms or in influencing the operation of uh, cognitive mechanisms, to my mind, culture is highly relevant in influencing the operation of cognitive mechanisms and the outputs that they produce, but is not capable on its own of uh, generating the existence of new cognitive mechanisms. And there's kind of a couple different reasons why I say that. The first reason is that, you know, as we know, um, everything in our body and brain and mind and behavior is jointly built by genes and environment working together. And genes alone are incapable of building the brain and body and mind and environment alone is incapable of doing that. And so if you ever ask me, you know, could genes alone produce this cognitive mechanism? The answer has to be no. Could the environment alone produce this cognitive mechanism? The answer has to be no, because it's always the joint interplay of both. Now, culture, of course, is a form or a subset of environment, right? Environment broadly construed is ecological and social and cultural environment. And so just as the answer is no to the question, can genes alone produce this or can environment alone produce this? The answer must be no to, can culture alone produce this? Everything is uh, built by the joint interplay of genes and environment. So that's one reason I think that it's appropriate to talk about the influence of culture and the role of culture but not to claim that culture alone can generate the existence of new cognitive or information processing mechanisms. The other reason that I think, the other reason I, I would like to change the way we talk about this or perhaps change the way we conceptualize this is that in psychology, there's a strange way that we talk about culture. In psychology, we take culture, culture, if we ask really what is culture, it's basically a statistical abstraction, a statistical aggregate of patterns of thinking and behaving and dressing and worshiping a certain way. And we take this statistical aggregate or this statistical pattern in psychology and we tend to reify it. We turn it into a thing and we call it, we think of it as an agent and we imbue it with causal powers. And then we say culture causes this, culture causes that. But if we take a step back and we remember that culture is a statistical aggregate of patterns, it's essentially a theoretical abstraction. And theoretical abstractions or statistical aggregates don't really have causal powers. 
So instead of saying culture causes X, culture causes Y, I think a preferable way of thinking about it is that culture gives us inputs into neurocomputational mechanisms in our brain. And these computational mechanisms take these inputs from culture, process them according to certain alg algorithms and decision rules, and then produce outputs. And that suggests that culture is relevant and is important because it serves as a key set of inputs into the evolved neurocognitive mechanisms in our brain. And it suggests that the output that we produce, behavior and so on, is very much going to be affected by culture. But this, instead of reifying culture and imbuing it with causal power and saying culture causes X, this seems to be a more plausible account of how culture is involved in the production of behavior. Because really, if we take a step back and we ask what produces behavior, we know that what produces behavior is the brain, right? It's not, it's not my coffee mug that produces behavior. It's not statistical abstractions that cause behavior. It's not the plants in my house that cause my behavior. It's my brain. And so to my mind, a better way of conceptualizing it is that culture provides a set of key inputs into the evolved neurocognitive mechanisms in my brain, which then take those inputs and process them and then produce output. And that suggests that culture and evolution are both relevant and it actually shows, it actually specifies the mechanism by which they work together. And I view that as more uh, plausible than saying either that culture alone produces these outcomes or produces these cognitive mechanisms or causes this. I also am not inclined to say evolved information processing mechanisms alone cause this or produce this outcome because they need inputs to process and those inputs come from culture and the social environment and the ecological environment. So to my mind, that's how to link the two and that provides a more accurate conceptualization than saying culture produces these things essentially on its own. Mm -hmm. Do you think that perhaps some of the confusion here could stem from the fact that perhaps people who focus on studying culture perhaps uh, are focus a little bit too much on the behavior side of things and then in evolutionary psychology, for example, you are, you are mostly interested in the information processing mechanisms that underlie those behaviors. Yeah, that could be. Um, so to, to highlight what you're talking about, the distinction between behavior and information processing, uh, behavior is really important, obviously, because it is the output of evolved psychological mechanisms. Behavior is what is visible to natural selection, so to speak. And behavior is the thing in many cases that either solves or doesn't solve the adaptive problem at hand. So it's very important. But if we think about how behavior is produced, how behavior is caused, we have to focus on the information processing level of analysis. And so, as you note, evolutionary psychologists often, um, it's not that they don't care about behavior, but it's that they think of behavior as the output of evolved information processing mechanisms. So if your goal is to explain behavior or predict behavior, the level of analysis at which you should focus and spend a lot of your time is the information processing level of analysis. And when you think of it this way, you start to think of behavior as the outcome. And so like kind of thinking of culture as the 
cause and behavior as the outcome, it's almost like you're skipping the step in the middle, which is the information processing step. And information processing has has often been skipped by psychologists, most notably the behaviorists for a long time. They kind of treated it as a black box and they looked at stimulus and outcome. And nowadays, a lot of us also still look at input and output. But I think what we ought to do is look at the intervening step of the computational mechanisms in the brain. And if we do look at that, then the picture becomes one of more input, computational mechanisms, and then output. Behavior here is usually an output. Culture is a key set of inputs, but you those two are not enough. You need the intervening step, evolved neurocomputational mechanisms that take the input, process it, and then produce the output. And I think you're right. When you think of it that way, it reframes the, ro the role of culture. It also lessens the degree to which there's a perceived conflict between evolution and culture. I don't think there is a conflict if you regard the mind as operating in the fashion that I just described. If you think of it that way, they're not competitors. They are both parts of the same causal chain, and they are both relevant and needed to explain the outcome that we care about, which is ultimately going to be behavior. <laughs> okay, so one last question, because we're talking about culture here. Um, we have the weird problem in psychology where, I mean, across most of its subdisciplines, People focus a lot in their studies on Western samples and particularly college and university students. Does that also happen in evolutionary psychology or would you say that perhaps it's a little bit more or people are more careful, careful in terms of being or, or, or gathering data from different cultures? I, well, both. I think that it does happen in evolutionary psychology. I think that all of psychology has been geared toward, and there's good data suggesting that really the vast majority of psychology has been geared toward weird populations. And as you note, in particular, weird populations that are young adults. But I think that evolutionary psychologists are aware of this and therefore try as often as possible to do cross-cultural studies. Um, of which there are many, 37 culture study, 45 culture study, 16 culture study. I'm thinking of particular ones in my head right now. Um, and so there are many cross-cultural studies conducted by evolutionary psychologists, but there's nonetheless still an issue of focusing on weird samples. And there's an attempt, I think, among both evolutionary psychologists and other psychologists to move away from this and to do a, more cross-cultural studies, B, more traditional forager subsistence society studies, and C, um, as me and my colleagues have tried to do sometimes studies in the Arab world and the Muslim world and, and countries that don't have uh, a ton of representation on the, the sort of international research stage. So nowadays you see more studies coming out with samples from Iran, samples from Pakistan, samples from um, 16 cultures uh, studying shame or 16 cultures studying pride or whatever. And um, I guess my overall answer would be it's still a problem in psychology, but I think the trend is one of improvement and one of greater integration of both cross-cultural studies and uh, samples that don't often get studied. And I think that trend is going to continue, and that's a very welcome thing.
Okay, so apart from the article, which I will link to in the description box of the interview, where can people find you on the internet? Oh yeah, thanks. Um, people can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Leith Al Shawaf, just spelling my name the way that I'm sure will appear on the video, uh, but with no hyphen, no dash. And people can also find me at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs uh, website, where I have a page there. And uh, you'll probably find my, my papers and my publications are linked there as well. Okay, great. So I will include that in the description box of the interview as well. And Leif, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. And let's hope that somewhere in the future we'll do this again. I hope so. Yeah, thanks a lot, Ricardo. It was a pleasure. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. My channel is now more than 3 years old and to keep it sustainable I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. If you prefer PayPal you can also find links to it in the description box of this interview. Otherwise and if you like what I'm doing please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larsen, Lauguerero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunda, Ricardo Vladimir, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Anion Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbord, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Eric Alenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windegger, Rui Nassi, Arthur Coe, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Colombo, Jorge Pinha, Phil Kavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Life, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Jugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Romain Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Please, Miran B, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafinia, Kian Gilligan, Sergio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardas France, and Nirban Balachandran. And finally, my executive producers, Michel Ruzieski, Rosie, James Pratt, and Matthew Lavender. Thank you for all.